This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, September the 3rd, 2019. Usually that's the Just Jack show on an individual topic. Given we're coming out of a long weekend, I kind of took Friday off with episode 2500, which was awesome with amazing feedback, by the way. Um... Hey, we're going to do a listener feedback show today because if I don't, the the backlog is going to get ridiculously stupid. It's always stupid to backlog, just the sheer volume of what comes in for these shows. But uh, I don't want it to get ridiculously stupid, so we'll go ahead and move that show into a Tuesday slot today. Just wanted to say before I tell you what we're talking about today, tick-tock, tick-tock, the clock ticks for us all another month down. Uh, not the official end of summer. Uh, the summer officially ends on September 21st during the fall equinox. But for many people, they kind of feel like it's fall. When August goes away, summer's over. The kids are back in school. The older kids have gone off to college, whatever. And uh, we're heading in. And and really, honest to God, September will go like this. Uh, I don't know how you guys have felt. I felt like 2019 flew up till about mid-July. And the six weeks that were the last two weeks of July and the four weeks of August just seemed to take forever. Like, really went really, really slow. And I've been through that before, and usually, like, you hit September, and you, you start coasting downhill. You hit October, the hill gets steeper. And you hit November, next thing you know, the freaking brakes are off, and you're down the hill and in until 2020. So that is coming, and, and just remember that the, what we talk about on this show is designing the life that you want to live. Because if you don't design your life, society has already designed it for you. It's not design your life or have someone do it for you. It's someone has designed life for you. The people that run our systems, and I always try to say not the system, but our systems, we have an amazing group of systems that create redundancy that in some ways is good because it keeps a lot of people alive. But it also is a mechanism of control to the point where we can take someone By the time they're 25 years old, look at their educational background, where they are in life, and with amazing accuracy, predict what their retirement will look like, and even within a few years, when they're most likely to die outside of some outliers like rare diseases and stuff like that. That's how they can afford to sell life insurance, because your life has been designed for you. Now, if you want to break out of that, you only have one choice. There's only one thing that you can do to make that happen. And what that one thing is, is to take control and design your life for you. Well, 2019 has four months left in it. What are you going to do with them? Are you going to let them evaporate like a fart in the wind, or are you going to do something with them? I'm asking you today, consider doing something with them, and let's see if maybe we can give you some incentive by talking about different things that are going on, how they impact us, how they don't, and what that really means to you in the real world about the things that you can do. Here's what I got today. I got a quote of the day for you that, boy, is going to fit in with this. It's by a guy named John Burroughs. If you've never heard of John Burroughs, you might want to look him up after this show. You might be surprised at some of the amazing work people were doing all the way back in the 1800s, early 1900s, about conserving and preserving our environment. Uh, we're going to talk about selling meat products. So you, you, you make you know pasture poultry or something, you do butchering and sell it out in parts. And what, how do you handle that when you're selling it to family and friends versus a general market? Some of you already know what I'm going to say. And it's not, it depends, is it? 
<laughs> Making mead and doing so with mass market honey. I've done some of that. People want to know what my results have been. A specific brand is mentioned in the question. We get there, we'll talk about it. AI-powered cameras. That's artificial intelligence if you've been living under a rock. AI-powered camera, and we should say systems. Uh, the article keeps referring to them as AI-powered cameras, but it's not AI cameras. It's AI systems using cameras uh, are being marketed now as a way to help stop shooting terror, you know, mass shootings and terrorism. We're talking about what this is all about and the good, the bad, and the ugly with it. I want you to uh, I have a question asking me for some ideas with low-carb lunches and or snacks. And I'm going to talk today about a few things you can do. I, I, I never try to answer a question that is specific like what should I plant or what should I eat only with how to think about it. Because if I can tell you how to think about it, I should be able to use the process I gave you to give you some concrete answers. But I think if I only give you the concrete answers and not how to think about it, I haven't really done you much of a service. And we're definitely going to talk about if you're living low-carb and specifically trying to live keto, some of the biggest mistakes, and it's mentioned right in the question that people make when it comes to, well, I'm going to keep my carbs low, so I'm going to eat. And one of the things that people put in that answer all the time is a big old eh, wrong answer. Do not do that. Well, unless you're making it yourself, and then you still better think about it. Really, really think about it. So next up uh, on that, you know, meat is a big part of that world, and, and there's nothing I love better than venison. It's my favorite meat. Um, it really is. And a lot of you guys are getting ready to head out in the deer woods not too long from now. Uh, a lot of the country, archery season starts in September or early October, and the weather is still pretty warm. And in some places, there's special early doe seasons and kid seasons and stuff like that. And, you know, the weather can be 60, 70 degrees or warmer. And you got a deer down, and you're processing the deer. How much do you have to rush when that's the situation you're dealing with? Are you going to die if you don't hurry up? Uh, then I got a question on venting wine, brewing beer, making meat, all of that stuff. Methanol, you know, you get rid of some of the methanol by pouring out, you know, your first... Uh, part of your distillate if you're making a moonshine or something. What about methanol in your beer and your wine? Is it a problem? Do you need to worry about it? I think this was actually sent in for Stephen Harris and designed to send him off into a Harris rant. And I, Harris has a lot of questions lined up right now. So I headed this one off. And we'll actually talk about this because there is something to be learned here about the, 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 the fact you don't need to worry about it in making beer, wine, and meat. It just, you don't. Okay, and the guy asked question. I think you knew that you wanted to make Harris blow a gasket. Uh, but even with making, you know, fuel that you drink, um, it is not the problem that people tend to think that it is. Um, question: and We've talked a lot lately about end of season garden beds and cover crops and all. Somebody just said, "Look, I just want to know what the hell should I do? I'm not going to garden." I'm uh, the hunting season, Christmas season. I don't want to do nothing. But I got all these like old tomato plants, pepper plants, all this stuff I've harvested. Nicole's going to come in and kill it. And I just want to just leave it alone and then start gardening again in the spring. I don't want nobody to bother me in the fall. Daggone it. I do enough work all year long. I'm taking a damn break from gardening. What do I do? We'll talk about that. Actually, it's really easy, but it's a great question. And it's how we take something that seems like a task and we turn it into opportunity. And then we have a question that... I, when I read it, you'll understand why I decided in the bullet points 
to drill it down to this, taking government grants and dealing with the restrictions that come with them. Because even though the question is specific, it doesn't really matter what the specifics are. Uh, when you take government grants for something, you got to do with the money what they gave you the money to go do with it. So we'll talk about that. And we have a misunderstanding about aquaponics once again inside this question that we will handle all of that and more in just a minute. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today is Ready Made Resources. Ready Made Resources, the company that decided right from the beginning, we're just going to name our company what we do, say what we do, and do what we say. All the resources you need for your prepping, ready-made, ready to go, on their website at readymaderesources.com. It's like a superstore for everything prepping, off-grid, etc., from the practical to the tactical and everything in between. You can find, I mean, honest to God, if you want to build an off-grid cabin, now the cabin part you're going to have to build yourself, but the off-grid electrical system, you can literally get everything you need, along with a person that will help you figure out what it is at Ready Made Resources, but you also can buy a pressure canner there. Or you can buy Mountain House food, or you can buy Mylar bags, or you can buy tactical equipment. I'm telling you, it is the Walmart of prepping, and I almost don't want to say that because it's insulting to ready-made because they're so much better than Walmart. They don't have a bunch of stores with a bunch of low-paid people that don't know what they're doing. But what I mean by that is if you go there, the stuff that they say you can get, you can get it all. One source, one great group of people available at readymaderesources.com. Next up today. Liberty in our lifetime is possible through the Free State Project, and I have been a supporter of the Free State Project since its inception. I would honestly say, I don't know, I can't say that I'm the number one supporter of the Free State Project that's not directly a part of it, but I bet you if you made a list of the ten people who have been the strongest supporters of Free State Project that have no plans ever to move to New Hampshire, I would make that list of the top ten. I just say the most influential, there might be some bigger names or whatever that have kind of touted it, but when it comes to die hard, I believe in what these people are doing, and I want you to be part of it if you can, that's me, guys. I, I wrote these guys a check one year for $2,000 to support their group. That's how much I believe in Free State Project. Well, I also gave them free advertising long, long ago for a couple of years in a row, and I kind of I do that to different groups at different times. And so they kind of had their turn. And they came to me this year and said, we want to become a sponsor. Do you have room? And I said, basically, I'll make room. And so I made room to make them a sponsor. And uh, they are just the most outstanding organization at promoting liberty that I have ever come across. And I invite you today, if you've never really looked into Free State Project, to go to a website, fsp.org. That's their main site. But try this out. It's, it's not a lot of extra typing here. fsp.org forward slash join, and you'll see the reasons to become part of the Free State Project. What these people have done, done is amazing, and I could give you a list of their accomplishments and the legislature and stuff like that and the laws they've got changed and dropped inside the state of New Hampshire, dragging it to be the freest state in the nation, but I'm going to tell you what I actually think is the bigger deal. Being part of their events, I think I've done three or four of their events. I have never seen a place where you see, like, Tattooed up, giant holes through their ear, you know, piercing anarchists, you know, the anarchists you would think of. Anarchists like me, that look like business people, libertarians, and, you know, right-leaning people in the best sense of the word. All of that mel you know, melange of the group working together for a common ideal. I've never seen anything like it. 
I don't know of another place where you can go and plug into a group like that. If you're looking to walk to freedom, and a lot of you are because you're in states you don't want to be in, I'm not saying that New Hampshire is the right state for you. I'm saying if you don't put it on your list of places to consider, you're making a mistake. Put it on the list. And this is the big thing. Get in touch with Free State Project. Tell them what your concerns are. Tell them what kind of job you're looking for, et cetera. They'll help you. There isn't another organization like this. Give them a shot. Again, you can learn more at fsp.org forward slash join. All right, with that, let's kind of dig into this today. I said that my quote of the day today would would be you know, perfect for the intro we had, even though it wasn't planned that way. I thought about this intro yesterday, and I found the quote of the day today by going to, I think it was Brainy quote. It was the first one they had up for today, and I, I like that. So it was serendipity. It was coincidence. It was synchronicity. And here is the quote. Leap. And the net will appear. And again, this is a dude named John Burroughs that said this. He says, I want to talk about the quote. I'm not going to say a lot about old John except to tell you he was around through the late 1800s into the early 1900s. He was a writer, essayist. He was deeply involved with conservation, environmental preservation. And this is a dude, you know, um, that people should know his name a hell of a lot better than they do. I'll just say that. And I encourage you to go learn a little bit more about Mr. John Burroughs. Um, but the, the quote, leap and the net will appear. A lot of people would look at it like that and say, you know, I know another saying, you know, out of the frying pan into the fryer. And if you just leap willy-nilly, you might end up in more trouble than you started out with. Or, you know, let, there's an old saying, let a smile be your umbrella and your ass will be soaking wet. That's not in conflict with what's being said here. I mean, for instance, uh, I've done some shows that are really about pursuing your life, the life you want, following your dream. And I've mentioned, you know, a lot of people are miserable in their jobs or whatever, and it's not a prison. You don't have to stay there. But I've always said, don't you go quitting your job today that you make 120 grand a year at as an aerospace engineer or something like that. Go home to your wife and say it's Jack Spierko's fault. He said to follow your dream, and your dream is to be a butterfly catcher. Like, that is not smart. And that is not what Mr. Burroughs is saying here. The fundamental reality is this. When you decide you want to make a change in your life, and whether that change is I'm living in an unhealthy way and I want to become healthy, you know, I want to get fit, uh, I want to own my own business, I want to retire early, I want to move, whatever it is, that you don't just jump initially. You figure out a plan. And you might say, you know, if I want to quit my job and I want to try to, you know, live a good life making 40000 a year instead of $100,000 a year, then I have to figure out, number one, what does that $40,000 a year income look like? How do I earn that money? And to make sure that it's not less money to be just as miserable. And if that includes a move somewhere, where am I going and where can I do that thing for that $40,000? And if I have debt, well, then I need to really buckle down and act like I'm making forty now and take the additional 80000 a year and fix the problems I have before I go there because I won't be able to fix them with less money. And, and whatever it is, if I'm eating unhealthy, I got to go in and clean all the garbage out of my house so I'm not tempted by it anymore. And I got to go out and get stuff and I got to educate myself so I know what I'm doing. And I got to develop a program and I got to follow it. But you can do all of that planning, every bit of it, down to the nano, you know, nanosecond of time of how it's going to be. You can write it out, you can map it out, you can build spreadsheets, and absolutely nothing, not the square root of F all, will happen until you take action. So there will come a point where the planning has taken you to the point where you are, you are as ready as you're going to be, and you're going to stand at an edge. 
And you either start the business or you don't. You either change the way that you're living or you don't. You either enact the plan to pay off your debt or you don't. At some point, you got to jump. you got to make it happen. The concept of the net will appear assumes that you're not an idiot. And it assumes that you have formulated the best plan that you can. And some portions of your plan will work exactly as you plan them, which will be the buffer that you need for the parts that do not work. The way that the net will appear is since you have no choice, you will find a damn net. You will cling on, you will grab on, you will adapt, you will improvise, and you will overcome, and you will make it happen. That's what Mr. Burroughs was saying And damn, that could be a theme phrase for the whole damn thing that is the Survival Podcast. With that, let's dig into some of your questions. Uh, Here's the first one, and it really is not an it depends for a change. So here's the question. Joseph says, hey, Jack, how should I price different cuts of meat for sale to family and friends? My wife and I like to raise a few pigs and a steer every other year or so. We have many friends and family members that would like to buy some meat from us. I know that normally you look up your costs and calculate your margin to come with the, with the price. But if you include our labor, it would make the meat very, very expensive. We're not looking to make a profit necessarily. We just raise them for fun and get some good quality meat. I would just like to sell our extra meat at fair market value to expose our friends and family to better quality meat. I'm having a hard time finding what fair market value would be. Uh, for different cuts. Any ideas? Maybe you could kick this to Darby Simpson if you like. Thanks for the show, Joe in Utah. Um, well, what I would honestly do is I would simply look up what is pastured pork selling for. And if it ain't what it's selling for in your backyard because no one else is doing it, well, find a place where people are doing it. What does pastured pork pork chops sell for? What does pastured pork ham, you know, back ham lake sell for? Or butt roast or... Uh, ribs, or if you're ready to steer, you know, what is grass fed, you know, ground beef selling for? And then that's the price. And I don't care that your families and friends. And, you know, you say, well, if we factor in our labor, uh, it would be really, really high. Well, maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't. I don't know. I think that's a good exercise to figure out anyway. Um, there generally isn't a whole lot of labor in raising pigs and steers. It's, You know, the animals, you kind of move them around is the biggest thing and make sure they don't kill themselves. Uh, And if you're putting a ton of labor in it, you really need to fix your system for your own benefit. And then there's another thing at play here. So, for instance, if you did ask Darby Simpson, you know, hey, Darby, you know, I want to raise a pig for my family this year. He'd be like, okay, yeah. And you go, well, I'd like to raise five of them. Because if I'm going to raise five of them, that way I can pay you know, for more than my own pig by selling four. He'd say, well, don't do that. And he'd say, well, what do you mean? He'd say, raise 20. Because it's going to be just as much work to raise 20 as it is to raise five. You're probably raising two or three. And, and, and maybe you're raising pigs that get really big, or maybe you're raising pigs that, you know, when you're doing it for yourself and you're a homesteader, like one of the greatest pigs you can raise is guinea hogs. But you're looking at a good 18 months to finish out guinea hog, and maybe even 24. Depends on when you know what they're eating and where they're at. But guinea hog is incredible. I didn't say guinea pig. I'm talking about American guinea hogs. They're pigs, real pigs, not little bitty rodents. Um, David. Anyway, um, you know it's a fantastic pork, but it's not one you're gonna make money on. 
It just isn't. So if you're raising like red wattles or even just what you'd call pink pigs, it doesn't necessarily mean they're all pink, but they're standard pigs. You're just treating them differently. Um, anything like that or any of the other heirloom hogs that you could finish out in eight months, uh, you're still probably raising like two or three or maybe one. And what that means is the reason your labor looks so high is because you're going to put as much work into two or three pigs as you would in 20. So it is absolutely the case that you probably don't want to pass on that cost to your family and friends. But whatever that fair market value is, and you can say, well, it's hard to find, well, then that's what I would do. What do you think the premium is? You know, is what do you think the premium is on um, a, a, a package of, like, f four thick, beautiful pork chops for a pasture-raised pig over a good quality, you know, factory-raised pork product in a store. And I'd say with pork, that premium's about 100%. So if something's selling for $3.99 in the supermarket and you can't find any other indicator, I would at least double pork from the market. Beef, grass-fed beef is a lot more available, but if you go to the grocery stores now, a lot of times you can find grass-fed beef. Do they ever lie on the label? They can because there's not a good enough standard for it. There's some industry grass-fed standards, but how you phrase it. But in general, grass-fed beef is grass-fed beef. Go look at what they're selling grass-fed beef for. Sell for that same price. If you can't find it, see, beef sells at a much bigger premium than pork, even when it's you know feedlot beef. So I'd say you need to be somewhere in a premium of about 20%, 25%. If you don't have a grass-fed equivalent to price yourself with, if, if something is $10 a pound in the market uh, on a general basis, I would say you should price that at about $12.50. And that's your best, your best guess with it. I think that th that's really all that you can do. But there is an interesting thing at play there, and that is that you will never recoup your labor costs when you're raising a small number of animals because, again, the work... You know, to take care of two pigs is about the same to work to take care of 20 pigs. It's not that much different. It might be a little bit, but boy, it, you know, by, by individual pig and hours in, no. And then if you're doing your own processing, that's a totally different scenario than some, like Darby's not going to do his own processing. Not unless you make him put a gun to his head, maybe, because he knows that his business isn't processing meat. His business is growing and caring for animals. So there you go. Quick mead-making question. We can do this pretty quick. What was your experience? This is from Derek in Michigan. Derek says, what was your experience with Dutch Gold Honey from Webstaurant.com in your meats? Thanks to you, you jerk. I'm hooked on making meads. I've done a traditional peach, your three flowers, and currently have a five-gallon batch of blueberry brewing. I remember you say you were going to try bulk honey from Webstaurant, but I don't remember hearing any updates that I miss it. Also, I know it's against the Department of Making You Sad's rules to sell alcohol beverages. But I can tell you that if you happen to work for one of the big three, there are plenty of people that will gladly offer a donation for said meads. Thank you for all your jerkness, Derek in Michigan. By one of the big three, I guess you mean like Anheuser-Busch Miller Coors. I think that's his beer maker, and he might be you know, trading some mead for some money that's not really selling it because it's just a donation for mead that he gave the guy for free that he wouldn't have took the money from, but the guy made him take the money, blah, 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 and he probably works for a brewery. So maybe the fellow members of the Brewing Guild, I, I, I don't know. But either way, I mean, there is a, a case for gray markets and agorism, and I just don't care what you do there as long as you're not dumb about it. Um, anyway, um, Dutch Gold 
is a honey that I've recommended many times. It's available from a website. Again, the website is websterrant.com. They're out of Pennsylvania, and if you live near them, you can go buy direct from them and save even more money. Uh, one, because there's no markup from the website, and the other, because uh, it's a third-party seller with Webstrong, and the other is because shipping honey is, you know, somewhat expensive because it's, it's dense, it's heavy. Uh, but what I said, there's a second variety at Webstrong store, uh, and it is, I don't remember what it's called, and I was going to try that because it was even less expensive than Dutch Gold. And a lot of people that use Dutch Gold told me they use the less expensive version, and they think it's basically an off-branded label from Dutch Gold, because they can't tell the difference and they get the same mead. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. I never tried it. I have not made a lot of mead this year. Um, but Dutch Gold makes good mead. Now, what does that mean, good mead? It means it makes a damn good mead, and no one will bitch about drinking it. Now, does it make as good a quality mead as if you have your own apiary and you have bees in your backyard and you have bees that are feeding on a hundred different varieties of wildflowers and row crops and everything mixed together and they have that incredibly unique, you know, flavor that is your honey? Probably not. Probably not. But Dutch Gold is honey. It is not sugar water. It's from the United States of America. It's a massive amount of honey. And if they say orange blossom, it's from bees that you know, were used to pollinate orange trees and citrus groves. It, it, it is what it says. If it's clover, it's probably from the Dakotas. But it's, it's collected from so many hives and such a mass level that it kind of evens out. And you lose the unique characteristics that even the hives that honey's coming from understand. Like getting honey from a, a single hive or a group of hives that all were in one spot for a specific period of time is different than getting it from a hundred hives, all of which you know were spread out, but mostly were getting the majority of their nectar from clover. There's going to be differences there. But it's a good honey. And the way I would say it is it's like making wine from really good grapes grown in a good wine region but not the best grapes that the best winemakers use. In other words, unless you're truly some sort of sommelier, it's going to be more about your craft as a mead maker than it is about the underlying honey. It's good quality honey. You can use it and it works well. The other variety they sell, and again, the website is called Websterant, and I will spell it because it's a little bit weird, but it's not, W-E-B-S-T-A-R-A-U-N-T.com. And I'll put a link in the show notes for you guys as well today to this site. The Dutch Gold Honey, and any place else you get Dutch Gold Honey, ain't nothing wrong with that honey. It's not Chinese honey. It's nothing like that. If you find a website or a forum or someplace or a group where people are bashing it, just ignore them. They don't know what they're talking about. They're not bad people. They're just ignorant. They haven't learned, and they don't want to learn, and they have some spiteful thing in them, and there's no reason to argue with them. Just make your mead, and don't offer them any, and you drink it yourself and share it with the friends that want it. There we go. Let's take another one. Okay, this next one uh, comes from John in Moorpark. He's like a one-man research team for me. It's a pretty long article, and it's called AI-Powered Cameras Become a New Tool Against Mass, mass Shootings. It's by Ivan Moreno of the Associated Press currently being run on uh, ABC News, but it's an AP article. So that's something that's syndicated out to all the major news networks. And it's one of the reasons a lot of times your local news in Florida sounds exactly like my local news in Texas, because that's what they do. They, they, the, the, the major uh, corporations tell all their affiliates run this story this way. Um, that said, I want to really 
kind of just read part of the sea. It's way too long for me to uh, to read the whole article to you, but I want to read a little bit of it. Here we go. I'm kind of starting in the middle. And I'll start off with a quote by a guy named Hildreth, and here's what he says. Uh, what we're really looking for are those things that help us identify either things before they occur or maybe right as they occur so we can react a little faster, Hildreth said. A year after an expelled student killed 17 people at a Marjorie Stone Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, Broward County installed cameras from a Canadian-based Avigon uh, throughout the district in February. Hilders Atlanta District will spend $16.5 million to put the cameras in roughly 100 buildings in the coming years. In Greeley, Colorado, the school district has used Avigon's uh, cameras for about five years, and the technology has advanced rapidly, said John Tate security manager for Weld County School District 6. Upcoming upgrades include the ability to identify guns and read people's expressions, a capability not currently part of Avigon's systems. Uh, quote, it's almost kind of scary, end quote, Tate said. Quote, it will look at the expressions on people's faces and their mannerisms and be able to tell if they look violent, end quote. Retailers can spot shoplifters in real time, alert security to run, r warn of potential shoplifters. One company, Athena Security, has cameras that spot when somebody has a weapon. And in a bid to help retailers, recently expanded capabilities to help identify big spenders when they visit a store. Okay, that's what I really wanted to get to here. So let me explain something. I am not one of these people that can't acknowledge when something I hate still is doing something good. If this type of system spots a kid with an AR-15 in his backpack that's about to shoot 20 other kids or more in a high school gymnasium, and because of that, they catch that kid and that shooting never happens, I am not going to sit here and say that's not a good thing. This is my concern. When this happens, you're getting into a case for textbook collaboration between private industry and the state and a lot of taxpayer money being spent and we call that fascism whether you want to admit it or not and I can't go into that today but economically that is how fascism works and hence what you're ending up with is even if private organizations etc are initially the majority of people putting in these cameras and schools would not be in that and schools are going to be doing it heavily You, we always know that the state ends up finding ways to get the data and the information and access to it and use it. And one of Spirico's laws of life is that any power granted to the state will be used incompetently and maliciously. And it's going to happen. They're going to abuse any power you give them. The, the only question is to what degree and who is actually going to do it. Well, this is an incredible incredible power. The ability to make determinations about someone's intentions by reading their facial expressions done by a computer. And this is how it's going to start out. Well, you know, you always oversell things a little bit. So what we really mean is it, it, the cameras are constantly scanning everybody and you get somebody and you look and it kind of just you know when you see a person looks angry or hateful or has that weird look. You know what I'm talking about. And just to be fair, you know what I'm talking about. You know when you've been walking around, you look at a dude and say, that son of a bitch is looking for a fight. You know? Or something's wrong with that woman. There is something wrong. There is a, there is a thousand yard stare there. But sometimes that is 
the person just had a bad day. Sometimes that is person wants to kill a bunch of people. You know, sometimes the reason that guy looks like that is he just found out that his wife served him with divorce papers. And by the way, he got the papers when he came home to an empty house. His kids are gone, and she moved back with her mom 17 states away, and he doesn't know what to do about it now. And he's going to look like he wants to rock and roll an AR-15 across 27 people. Doesn't mean he's going to do it. So what they're going to say is, well, it doesn't really, like, it doesn't shoot the person. for It's not RoboCop cameras. What it does is say, holy shit, this dude looks pissed. And then it's going to start tracking him. And it's going to tell your humans that are there as part of the, your security, hey, we're tracking this dude. Watch him. But it's better than that. See, since all the data's been recorded, and the guy maybe showed up at, let's say, a concert, and he showed up there 30 minutes before something tripped, now the computer can use the model, because they showed in this demo in another part of this article, there's a girl, she's dressed a certain way or whatever, they just picked her and said, hey, and they were able to say, even though this is now, go back and show us an entire timeline of this person. So now we can say, okay, that person looks... Like, he might be dangerous. He's got something on him. We don't know if it's a weapon, but it's possible. We need to start getting people to shadow him, but we can also now go see where he parked his car, what he did when he parked his car, and completely recreate in real time, very, very quickly, everything he's done up till now while still tracking him where he's going. And honest to God, if I'm running a major business or something like that, and I think that I'm a potential target, I want this system. My God, the abuse that can come from this. Uh, imagine the violations of privacy. The violate. The, the, this is my biggest concern about this. I'm in the government, okay, and I'm high enough up where I can get away with things. Like a beat, if a beat cop does what I'm about to describe, if he gets caught, he might go to prison longer than you ever thought about going for whatever he did to you. All right, um, but there are people in our government that operate outside of the norms. They can do things that regular law enforcement can't. We decide someone's public enemy. We have systems like this all over the place. Imagine how quickly we could build a dossier to use against them. Even if it was just the appearance of something that doesn't look good. You know? You seem to be a very frequent user of this liquor store. Maybe you have an alcohol problem. Oh, that's not illegal. Yeah, well, pastor, maybe your church would like to see this. Well, what I'm doing is feeding the homeless guys to hang out in front of there. Maybe you are. Maybe you aren't. You know, the court of opinion is pretty fickle. And one of the things that our government does is they leverage citizens against other citizens, and they do it in very, very dirty ways. Additionally, let's say you are Captain America and you believe America can't do nothing wrong. This is not technology that will only exist in America. This is not technology that when used in America will only be able to be available to Americans. Everybody hacks everybody. Everybody, And when we act like, I can't believe China hacked us while we have entire teams hacking China all the time. We're all hacking each other. It's like the Cold War was, and the Russians knew some things that were going on inside our government for people in our government that should have known knew, and vice versa. It went both directions. And that was before we had all this shit. So the dangers are things that people wouldn't even think about. Let's talk China. China has been turning Americans 
into Chinese operatives. They've done it through money, but a lot of times the money is a way to soften the blow of being turned by being manipulated and being put into compromising positions and then say, hey, you wouldn't want anybody to know about this now, would you? Well, this this now this data ex that exists, any hands that it gets into can be used to build leverage tools and dossiers against anybody. And I personally believe that just about every American today has a, a digital dossier. There's not a file somewhere, a brown manila folder somewhere that says Jack Spearco. Um, for me, there might be. Who the hell knows? But it's not. Yeah, it's not like that. But there is a digital assemblage. That if anything about you irritates anybody or you come up as a there is more knowledge available about you. And I'm not just talking your license plate number, your anniversary, and where you live and your credit report, right? Very, very personal information. It can be developed about you like that. Well, what if one party gets enough power that they can use it against the other party in our two-party system And the other party really can't answer back. I mean, there's so many things, the potential for abuse here. And this technology, along with other technologies, is now allowing to do things like a single picture of an individual can be turned into a video of that individual with any voice imprint from that individual saying anything that they want them to say. So they could make a video that looks like Barack Obama sitting down for an interview saying, huh, everybody, and, and it would sound like Barack. I can't do his his voice. I'm not Rich Little. Some of you are too young to know who that was. But I can't do impersonations. But it would look like Barack Obama, and you could have Barack Obama saying something like, everybody thinks George Bush was behind 9-11, but it was really me. I was doing it right out of the Senate. And I worked with, and, I mean, or any ridiculous thing you can come up with, or anything that seems plausible. All of this together is making for a very scary future. And it's just something to keep an eye on because it's not something you're going to write your senator and do anything about. But be aware that this type of thing is going on. All right, so this comes from Marty, who sent me a lot of great stuff over the years. He says, how about some low-carb lunches or snacks, Jack? I've been following your low-carb suffering and love the meal ideas. In the past, I've done Atkins with some great success, but I find the most difficult part is my time at work. If there's ample time, anyone who can whip up a fantastic low-carb dinner or even a great low-carb breakfast, but with a stove and a full kitchen, it's a breeze, but most low-carb food is meat-centric. And I prefer any. I prefer my meat warm. Snacking on beef jerky gets boring super fast. At work, I don't have time to set up a cook. I can reheat in a microwave or the toaster, though. Can you help us out with some low-carb lunches or snacks and maybe a whole episode like the other meals? Uh, but I think listeners who want to try to suffer along with you might find it super helpful. Thanks for all you do, Marty. Okay, first, I will do an episode again soon, more on... Keto style eating, and I got to tell you that as I came back into this more from my past experience with protein powered and Doctors Eads, which is far more fat than Atkins, I've gone full keto because as I've researched the science, I've determined that this is the way to be. And so we're talking about a diet that's high in fat, moderate in protein, and very very low in carbohydrates, especially at a point like I'm at in the intervention phase, at 20 grams of net carbohydrates or less. I'm going to tell you that if you do that, after a couple weeks, the entire concept of snacks, you're not going to have that much of a deal with it because you are going to have to force yourself to eat. So the snacks will not, we're going to still answer it, but I'm going to tell you, it will mitigate it a great deal. As far as lunch, and you prefer your meat warm and all, what I would suggest is to start making your evening meals 
with more of a protein portion than you're going to eat. This is a, Now, I, I do have a stove here, and I, I live in a little bit different world than a lot of people. I accept that, where I can make my lunch on a stovetop, which I did today. Um, so here's what I had for breakfast today. I made myself a small salad. Now, to me, a small salad used to be like a handful of greens and a little bit of other stuff. Now to me, because I have to eat more salad on this keto thing, a small salad is like two cups of green vegetables. So that's lettuce, arugula, spinach, stuff like that. Swiss chard, chicory, whatever. So two handfuls of green vegetables. Uh, blue cheese crumbles and my own blue cheese dressing. Two pieces of bacon fried crisp. Uh, Crisp-ish, I should say, not super crisp. Don't want to get rid of all that fat. We need it. Two duck eggs over easy. And um, some leftover ribeye steak, probably about three ounces of good, beautifully cooked, rare, fatty ribeye. That was my, my suffering today for what I call lunch fast, because I'm only eating two meals a day now. Now, how would we recreate that in a lunch we can take to work where all we have available to us is a microwave oven? It's actually not that hard. Now, you ain't going to be able to do the over-easy eggs. You, you really aren't. Take yourself a couple hard-boiled eggs. Leave them in the peel. Leave them in the shell. They'll just be fresher and nicer when you, when you get to work. Take yourself a bowl. Put a couple handfuls of salad in it. Chop up a couple pieces of bacon. And if you want them warmed, and that's kind of nice, put them in a little separate bag or something and put them inside the container with your salad. Uh, maybe add some little fixings to your salad to liven it up a bit. Chopped pecans are great, very, very low carb. Now, they're 200 calories an ounce. So we need to be looking at our macros and our total calorie count here. But, you know, a couple, two-tenths, three-tenths of an ounce of chopped pecans with that salad, that's going to be nice. Have some shredded cheese. You can just throw that on top of your salad. Take your steak and put it in a different container along with your eggs. Now, when you get to work, microwave that steak enough to warm it in that bowl, and what's going to happen is some of the juice is going to come out of that steak. Okay? Now, put your salad, take your, your, your beef, and dump it on top of your salad, and what you'll get is that warm juice will slightly wilt a little bit of the salad. Now, all of a sudden, it's like having a steak salad at the restaurant. Chop those eggs up. Throw the bacon on there, a little bit of chopped pecans, and you're eating very close to what I ate. You don't have the um, the runny yolks from the eggs, but you see what I'm saying? Like you got to start thinking, how do I just? You know, Tupperware's in the Tupperware and plastic bags are amazing. And the number one thing you can do to improve the quality of food that you take to work is don't put it all lumped together. Keep it separated so your salad stays nice and dry until you're ready to eat it. Get one of those little bitty Tupperware things, measure your dressing, and you can do this when you are done with dinner. Make your dinner, eat your dinner, take your leftovers from lunch and get create from dinner and make your lunch for the next day. And if you start eating a true keto diet, you may find yourself doing what I'm doing. I'm eating around 2 o'clock. Now, you might have to eat at noon because you work at an office, and maybe that's when you have to eat. Whatever, fine. And you might find yourself eating at noon and 6. Right now, I am eating at about 2 and 6. I'm eating two meals a day and no snacks. Now, I'm not going to do that for the rest of my life, but I'm going to tell you something amazing. I feel very confident right now that I pretty much could, that 90% of the time I could do that, 
and I will never feel hungry. I will never be upset about it because I'm getting about 65 to 75% of my calories from fat. Good quality animal fats, cheeses, avocado, etc. Now, let's do some snacks. Let's do some snacks or light portion lunches because let's say we're going to, let's say you say, Jack, you can take your intermittent fasting and shove it where the sun doesn't shine. I ain't doing that. I want to do three meals a day. Okay. Then how about we do this? How about we do a good substantial breakfast because you can make that at home, a good substantial dinner because you can do that at home. Let's take our lunch to more of a light portion lunch to the high in fat. So we can take something like Matisse Gallego sardines and maybe we are going to reduce how much we're going to eat at lunch. So only one sardine or maybe two sardines. And we're going to put those in some sort of container along with all that beautiful fat that comes with them. We're going to get us a little plastic bag. We are going to cut up some avocado, put it in that plastic bag, push all the air out of that bag so we can get all the way to lunchtime without turning brown and nasty on us. We're going to put a little bit of lemon juice on that as well. Maybe we're going to take a little bit of those pecans or another really great low-carb thing as long as we measure our portions and count accordingly. Pumpkin seeds, roasted pumpkin seeds, a little bit of salt going on there, maybe one or the other of those, a little bit of grated cheese. We're going to keep this all separated, bags, you know, um, Tupperware, whatever. I can't remember the other thing. It's like Tupperware, but I think it's better. It's, I, I can't remember the brand name, but that's mostly what we have, whatever that stuff is. You know what I'm talking about. I think it starts with a P. Um, anyway, so you got that and a few leaves of butter lettuce. Now we get to the office. We're not going to heat this up. This is going to be good at room temperature. We put into each butter leaf what's one or two or three, depending on how many we want to eat, but we need to look at our calories and our counts and everything. We're going to take that beautiful piece of fish with that great nutritional profile that is almost a perfect nutritional profile because of the added fat from the olive oil and the natural fat of the sardine, and we're going to put it in one of those beautiful lettuce leaves. We're going to take some of that avocado out. We're going to mash that up and put that on there. We're going to sprinkle some pumpkin seed or some pecan or maybe a little bit of both on there for some crunch. Add a little bit of cheese. Maybe we even put in a little bit of olive oil of our own fresh, just that beautiful extra virgin stuff into another little container. We're going to drizzle that over there, roll that up, and eat that like a taco. See? And this is not like I'm going to plan this this way. I'm going to look at what's available to me on a daily basis And I'm going to formulate my meal based on that. The only thing that makes keto eating hot, which is high fat, moderate protein, low carb, difficult at all, is meal prep. So the more we can do to prep those meals. Now let's talk about snacks as a whole. There's the number one snack people eat that they shouldn't when they think they're being low carb, whether it's Atkins, Protein Power, Keto, I don't care what it is, is beef jerky. Beef jerky is some of the highest carbohydrate per ounce snack that people think of as being low-carb that isn't. It, it, it's somewhere on the neighborhood of one small packet of beef jerky, like, like a Jack Link's, not the big one, not the pounder, the one's like three and a half ounces, comes out of something like 18 carbohydrates. And some of your, you, some of your, your mouth just dropped. What? What? Black pepper, Jack Links, and, and you know what? I'm going to look it up so I'm not pulling this number out of my ass because it might be higher. So I, I can't find, I think it's like a 3.25 ounce thing. I, I'm trying to get this show done, so I, I mean, I'm sorry, I just can't uh, find that exact one. But this is a uh, 
on Amazon. This is like the 5.85 ounce. So this is your now your smaller bag. This is the bag that you see at the front of the grocery store, and you're trying to be good, and you're trying to not eat too much sugar. And so you think, well, what I'll do, I'll grab that beef jerk instead of M&M's. And you're, you, you're making a better choice, but maybe not much better. You think I'm kidding? Okay. So the back of this packet says, total carbohydrates, 7 grams, 6 of which are pure sugar. This is Jack Link's black pepper beef jerky, probably the best thing that they make taste-wise. What? 7 grams, no fiber, so 7 full grams of carbohydrate. Well, if you're trying to stand under 20, that's a third of your carbohydrates. Oh, but you got to read the whole label. Serving size, one ounce. Servings per container, about six. 42 carbohydrates. If you eat, and it's really not, let's be completely honest here. Let's not do anything exaggerative. We don't have to. Uh, 5.85 times 7, 40.95. Let's go ahead and round that. Can we round that up without sounding intellectually dishonest? 41 carbohydrates. And about a 5.85 uh, ounce pack of beef jerky. 40. Car- Let's compare that to something that we know we're not supposed to be uh, consuming. There are 39 grams of carbohydrate, all of it in the form of pure sugar. Where? And a 12 ounce can of Coke. If you eat a 5.85 ounce bag of beef jerky from Jack Links, and by the way, everybody else that makes it like that, all the major brands, the numbers are almost the same. You have consumed more sugar than had you drank a Coke. You want to understand how much worse this is? Well, with the can of Coke, you have shocked your body with almost 40 grams of sugar. And in doing so, you have introduced about 140 calories in your body at the same time, meaning you're spiking your insulin, you're causing all of the problems that go with that, But when it comes to actually giving your body calories with which to have an excess need of, to be in excess of what you need, and for that insulin to block burning so they become fat, you've only given 140 calories to work with. Well, if you do that with beef jerky, you got to understand all that sugar is from soy sauce and sugar that was absorbed by the meat in a marinade. The meat itself is indeed sugar-free. Right? The sugar is an addition. So now you've eaten 5.85 ounces of dried red meat. When that meat was not yet dried out, it's probably over a pound of beef. Translation. In that one bag of Jack's Link beef jerky, not only is there more carbohydrates, more sugar, than there is in an entire can of Coca-Cola, there's almost 500 calories. 468 calories. 468 calories and 40 grams of sugar is not a snack. It is beyond a meal, and it has doubled your allowance for carbohydrates for the entire day. So if you want to use any sort of a dried meat in a low-carbohydrate eating plan, no matter what it is, you need to make your own. And I would suggest looking more toward Biltong, because there's no real sugars in Biltong. You know, we just, with the way we, so you make your own, and you can make your own jerky, which is basically follow a biltong recipe and cut, cut it thin. You don't need massive amounts of soy sauce to make beef jerky, and you certainly don't need massive amounts of sugar 
And what you do need to do is whatever amounts of anything you use, you need to then do the math and figure out what's in there. Now, there's another problem. And I know I'm spending more time telling you what not to eat than what to eat, but we'll, we're going to do a show. So I'm going to let that slide. I'm going to let myself slide there. Because i gotta, I got to explain this one more thing when it comes to carbohydrates and blood sugar. The entire point of restricting carbohydrates is because we control our blood sugar. We do not then produce insulin in excess. And when we have insulin in excess in our body, we shut down fat burning. We can't burn fat. This is scientific fat. I'm not, in fact, I'm, make, I'm not making this up. Any biology textbook will explain this to you if you want to go read it. But there is a process, and this is why you don't have to have carbohydrates, because your body does need some glucose. There, there, it does use it as energy, and there are certain bodily functions that without glucose cannot happen. Uh, if, you could not, if you had no glucose whatsoever available, eventually you have systems that would shut down and you would get very sick and or die. But that doesn't mean you need to eat any carbohydrates because of a process called gluconeogenesis. Gluconeogenesis simply means that your liver can make glucose from other things, primarily protein. And if we eat a huge amount of protein beyond our needs, so that means more calories in protein than we can burn, then your liver will take the excess protein, and instead of using it for things like improving your body structure or burning directly its fuel, it will do gluconeogenesis, because it has to do something with it. And it will turn those proteins into glucose. And then if that glucose is in excess of what the body can absorb, it will be converted to body fat and stored. While it is in the form of glucose, it will spike your blood sugar like any other dump of glucose into your body. What is the ratio here? If it's be And it's is beyond what your body can use, it's 60%. So if you consume 100 grams of protein beyond what your body can use for energy and structural uses, it will be con con it will be converted into 60 grams of glucose. Does this mean we run for the hills and stop eating meat? Not at all. It is built into the keto plan, and the other diets you're following, like Atkins or Protein Power, it's built into their plans as well, and all of them work. They work a little bit differently. And they all can be healthy and they all can be effective. But you have to over you have to follow the entire plan, not just the carbohydrate restriction portion of it, with portioning, meals, timing, etc. Okay? So you've got to be careful. See, I'm gonna have a low carb snack, and then you pound a lean protein like chicken breast or turkey breast. Because now the majority of the calories are in the form of protein, and that is much easier for the body to turn into sugar, which is good, because that's what I'm saying. You can have very, very low to even no carbohydrates, and the limited amount of glucose your body does require, your liver can make it. So we got to think when we do snacks. We want to bring fat and protein together, and we want to bring fat and protein together in our snacks, just like our meals, at about like 70-25. 5% carbohydrate. That doesn't mean you have to have carbohydrate in the meal, but in general, for most people, not everybody, some that are bigger people might be as high as 10% carbohydrates in your meal. Or I'm sorry, 5% carbohydrate might be as high as 40 carbohydrates. If you're a really big weightlifter and your caloric needs are up, then you're, 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 you're going to take a percentage of carbohydrate at 5%, and you're eating 2,500 calories, and you're burning 3,500, because even though you're, you're, you're a big guy, you'll need to lose some weight, you're still going to have more carbohydrates. See how that works? It all balances out. That's why I like keto. For me, I try to stay under 20 carbs right now. I got, I got weight to lose. 
And uh, just to give you guys an update, if you didn't see the video that went out today, this morning I was under 232. 231.8, and I count the points because I do it every day, not just what it, one day out of you know out of 10. And uh, I am down over 15 pounds since I started. I've lost 6% of my body weight in 23 days. And I'm at a point now where I'm losing about one pound every four to six days, which is exactly on plan with the caloric deficit that I'm running, even though I don't feel it because I'm burning fat for energy. That's how this stuff works. I'm sorry I couldn't be more specific, but we'll talk about some more meals uh, on a dedicated episode. I just don't want to turn this into the low-carb hour uh, podcast. It's the survival podcast that always will be. Yeah, this one, the, the answer is going to take less time than reading the question. It is a little bit long of a question. It's going to be a really short answer. How much? This is from Mike in Pennsylvania. How much time do I have to process a deer on a warm day before the meat gets ruined? Details. My son and I are going to go archery hunting for deer the first time this year. We tried rifle last year. No luck. Opening day for archery in my area of Pennsylvania. It's September 21st. Last year it was over 70 degrees out. I listened to both of your archery deer hunting podcast series several times in the last year. You mentioned that if it's warm out, skin and quarter it ASAP to get it in the refrigerator. You also said that after a shot, wait half hour before looking for the deer so it can die undisturbed. I watched the video you linked in one of the episodes of a guy skinning and quartering a deer in four minutes. Uh, with this being my first time, I doubt I can do it that fast. I have butchered dozens of chickens myself over the past few years, and I helped butcher pigs as a kid. I'm not totally inexperienced. My, ex my question is, how much time for being shot to the fridge do I have? MSB since last year. I'd love to hear more on the show about hunting in general. Also, just a fun question. I heard on another hunting podcast that your first year, you should take a bite from the heart uncooked in the field. How safe is this? Parasites. Not really planning on doing this. Just curious. Okay, so um, I'll give you the heart answer really, really fast. Don't do it. It's probably safe, but it's just stupid theatrics. There's no good reason to. You're not an Indian capturing the animal's soul. Uh, take that heart home. Cut it up into pieces. Lightly saute it so it's just a little pink in the middle. It will be one of the best pieces of venison you'll ever eat, and you will really enjoy fried deer hearts. Okay, so this is where, like, what I do now in Texas is very different than what I always did in Pennsylvania. I don't feel dressed deer here in Texas. Um, because I'm always hunting at places that have a facility with, a, you know, electric gramble that holds the deer up, and I can, I know I'm going to have that deer um, hanging within an hour and a half of when I shoot it. And there's days that I'm hunting here that it's really cold, and there's days when it's warmer than you're going to deal with. And I don't even worry. When you know I'm gonna have to if you're gonna have, you know I can't get a truck in your archery hunting sometimes you have a you know a drag might take you an hour to get a deer out depending on where you're at for you can get it to a vehicle or what have you you know the biggest thing is this is what I always did when I hunted public lands and even private lands in Pennsylvania uh, was that deer goes down where that deer falls that deer's getting gutted and that's the number one thing you can do and the most of the rest of it's not gonna matter unless you're stupid about it okay. So what you want to do is you want to make sure you watch some videos on how to field dress a deer. This is not skinning. This is not caping. This is not quartering. This is basically opening this deer up. And I talk about it in the episodes you're, you're, you're going to listen to and get the guts out of the deer. In my kit, as you might remember, I always carry two one-gallon um, Ziploc bags. Into the, that one bag goes the heart and the liver, and that bag goes in another bag. That way it's double bagged so it doesn't leak all over the place somewhere. And once that deer has been field dressed, 
And usually if somebody's with me, you know, we'll hold the deer up together by the front legs and drain as much of the blood out of the animal as possible. We'll throw that bag up inside the body cavity of the deer and drag the deer out. Usually put a rope around its neck. If it's a buck and it's close and it's not a far drag, you just grab an antler and, and off you go. Some of your smaller deers, it's actually easier to drag them ass first. If you can easily lift the ass end of a deer up and it's not a buck, so there's no antlers to drag on anything, Easiest thing to do is grab the two back legs, lift the butt up off the ground, and just drag. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're younger, does and stuff, button bucks, 70, 80-pound animal on the hoof, probably weighs 60 pounds once gutted. I mean, it's just, you, there's no need for anything else. Once you've gutted that deer, the any potential real problems of bloating and stuff like that are gone. And understand the deer's body temperature is over 100 degrees. They, I don't remember exactly what it is, but a deer runs a higher body temperature than our 98.6 when you gut that animal and that animal dies and that blood starts circulating everything starts cooling down if you threw that carcass hanging up in a cooler there is still a certain amount of time it takes for the heat to exit the meat in the first place and if you're 70 degrees outside that deer is going to cool not much slower than if it was in a refrigerator at 45 degrees. The difference is when it hits 70 and it's 45 degrees in the cooler, it's going to continue to cool. It's going to go down to that temperature. It's going to get held there. So you, you got that. You don't have to really get all bent out of shape about it. This is what I mean when I say get it done as soon as possible. As soon as possible under reasonable circumstances. So I remember... Guys would shoot a deer in early deer season in Pennsylvania, and then they, they would gut it. At least they would do that. And then they'd, like, strap it on the hood of their truck or their their Jeep. You know, and if they got it in the morning especially, then they go to the bar and tell everybody about their deer, and then they drive over to the gun club and they tell everybody about their deer, and then they drive through town and tell everybody about their deer. And that deer spent four or five hours on the hood of that truck, Then they go home, and because they want everybody to see it, they hang that deer up in their front yard when they should damn well know better because the damn temperature outside is 70, 75 degrees. And that is stupid because that is inviting in the potential for some spoilage of meat. Now, here's the thing about meat, though. You're not going to have a piece of red meat that's spoiled and really not know it. You will know. And in spite of all those dumb Fs that do that, I have never heard anybody ever do that and end up sick from their deer meat. It's just not a best practice. So what I mean by that, cut your deer, get your deer out, take your deer home where you got your equipment to work with, skin your deer, break it up into pieces that are manageable, and get it into an old refrigerator or get it into a cooler. If you're doing it into a cooler... Make sure that you're putting your ice on the bottom. Put some good, you don't want meat sitting in water. So a couple, you know, just a couple contractor trash bags and make a layer and then set your meat on top of it. Don't put it inside a bag initially. Let it cool down. And if you have to, like you're, you're hunting remote or something, I have no problem then. Let's go ahead and put the meat in the trash bags and put the trash bags on top of the ice. I'm fine with that. But until that meat cools, just in the cooler with the cold air being and let it cool down and it'll be fine. My favorite thing to do with it if you have an extra refrigerator is to put it in a refrigerator, let it age a few days, the meat will get really cold and really hard and then when you cut it into smaller pieces it's really easy to work with. 
and don't try cutting a deer up beyond basically quartering it um, until it's cold. You can go ahead and take your back straps and stuff like that off if you want to, and I usually do. But if you want the cleanest, nicest cuts, get that meat cold and hard, and it will just cut really beautifully for you. So I hope that helps, and I hope it, you know, this is kind of like a Charlie Papazian moment. You just got a deer. Relax, don't worry, have a homebrew. It's going to be okay. You don't have to get in a big hurry. You don't have to do a sprint. You don't have to be a four-minute flash when it comes to, you know, field dressing, quartering, skinning, and stuff like that. You don't have to do that. And you're probably not going to, and I'm never going to do it either. I'm quick. I'm not that fast. I actually take my time skinning a deer and parting a deer out because I actually really enjoy it. It's very meditative for me. I feel it's very much part of the process, especially it's one thing if I am helping a friend who shot a deer, but if I've either killed a deer or if I come under the fortunate opportunity to obtain one that's maybe been killed by a vehicle, even though it's technically illegal, I will still do it because I cannot find a game warden in this state told me he's ever written a ticket for it. And I've had two occasions where a cop has helped me put a deer into the back of my truck. So I will pick up roadkill deer. I just won't do videos of it like I did and had to take down one time just to not tempt, tempt the state. Um, and I'm going to consume that deer. I kind of see the processing as part of the entire appreciation for the animal's life. So I take my time with it, and I've never had a problem. And you'll know when meat's bad. I mean, that's... Do you think about it? Our ancestors, they just hung meat up and let it dry. And the, the danger there is flies. And that's where a lot of salt and some other things come in and smoke, right, to prevent that. But, I mean, in general, if there was no flies around and you hang meat up, you know, not fat, because fat can go rancid, but, but pure protein up, which deer meat's very lean, you're going to get just dried meat. So anyway, don't try it that way, but that's just a way to understand and not really worry too much about it. So um, here we go. Uh, this is from Larry, and Larry says, When distilling liquor, you pour off the first little bit that has methanol in it. Is this methanol in homemade wine, uh, beer, or other brews? Is it just so diluted that it's not a problem? Is it just methanol or are there other toxins? Okay. There are a few little things besides ethyl alcohol whenever we make any kind of a beer, wine, spirit, anything. But the only one that's actually a danger if concentrated is methanol. And so when we make a beer or a wine or something like that, there's some methanol. It is such a small amount relative to what we're producing that we uh, we just don't worry about it. I mean, that that is exactly right. That's exactly the way things are. No need to worry. And, and I just want you to think about it this way. If I make five gallons of beer, I end up with about five gallons of beer. All right? I mean, I know it sounds crazy, but it's just I end up with about 60 bottles in a five-gallon batch of beer. And if you're smart, you make about a five-and-a-half-gallon work because you're going to lose some. But you end up with almost whatever you make, you end up with. And whatever you lose, you lose as you know slurry and liquid and stuff like that or evaporation a little bit maybe. Um, so that means that the little bit of methanol that's in your beer, and it might be a very little bit, and I'll talk about that in a second, is uniformly distributed through five gallons. Now, we, uh, we, we make ourselves five gallons of wash. We put it in a still, and we might get out a gallon of, of ethyl alcohol. Okay. 
Well, now we have concentrated the methanol into a gallon versus five gallons. It's five times more relative to the total volume. And that's why it can be a problem. But guess what? No, it can't. There are certain fruits and some other things that make lower quality mashes that produce a little bit more methanol than, than others. If you are making a sugar mash... There is very little methanol in there anyway. So if you're doing a basic sugar mash, you know, moonshine, which I'm saying white sugar and water, it's very, very clean fermenting. There's not much methanol there. If you're making a brandy out of bananas, which is an old moonshiner trick, rotted bananas, and that's where some of the methanol issues came from, you're going to get significantly more methanol than if you're making a, a corn mash, which you're going to get a little bit more than a sugar. You see, so it varies. However, even in five gallons... Or, or, I mean, you know, even in a big still run, if you take and take all of the distillate and you don't pitch your, 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 your fronts and your heads and your tails and you don't just take the hearts and you take it all, as long as you pour it all together and blend it, it's still not enough methanol to do nothing to you. Where problems had happened in the past is, number one, the United States government poisoned the freaking alcohol during Prohibition with methanol, and then said it was bad hooch. That's the number one way it ever actually happened. But the other thing that happened, let's say you make a really big run. You're a moonshiner. You're running 50 gallons of wash or 100 gallons of wash. And you catch that whole first quart, and you don't discard that, and you don't blend it, that's almost all methanol. That shit will make you blind or kill you. That's the, that's the truth in the whole thing. But when it comes to making your beers and your wine, it's just, it just not a thing. It, it, it doesn't matter. Um, and as far as other toxins, there's some things that your body may have a little bit more difficulty getting rid of. But in general, the reason that if you don't drink stupid, okay, that you know, home brews generally um, produce less of a hangover than commercial is we don't, kill the yeast. Now, I'm talking, we're back to beer, mead, wines. So you're getting a big old B12 boost. And so if we drink some water with our homebrew, or after we're done drinking, we're going to have a lot less ill effects the next day, because basically we've given ourselves a B vitamin. That does not mean you can get all your B12 from your homebrew. That's not a good idea. Always drink in moderation. Let's take another one. Uh, Skyjumper says, I wonder if you jump out of airplanes, if you mean that, but who raw if you do, especially if you ever did it, uh, we're in the colors of this country. Anyway, uh, question concerning the gardens at the end of the growing season. There's been a lot of emails and responses from you on gardening, from planting uh, and planting, maintaining and harvesting, dealing with bugs and diseases. But what about the steps we need to take at the end of the growing season as it comes to an end? What do we do with all the annuals once production has stopped? We've harvested our crops. Is there anything we need to do for perennials? What should we be doing to prepare our gardens and garden beds for winter? I know I've asked more than one question, and this could probably be a show topic, uh, my first year doing serious gardening, I built my beds last year. Too late to really do any planning. Here in Minnesota, we've still got another month or two of production. But winter's coming. I'd like to prepare for the end of the season so my garden beds are left in the best possible condition or even better season next year. Thanks for all you do, Sky Jumper. Okay, well, let's talk about this. So I'm going to answer the annuals totally different than the perennials. Perennials are generally not in a garden bed that we think of. If you have perennials in a garden bed and they are dieback perennials, meaning they, they go back to the ground and they're going to come back from the roots, all you need to do is put a big layer of mulch on top of them. 
That's it. If there are perennials that stay above the ground and lose their leaves and whatever, if they're right for your climate, make sure they're mulched around them. Do pruning when they're dormant, if that makes sense for what you have, and don't do nothing. Garden beds. Okay. Now, if you are a vegetable gardener, the easiest thing you can do to make your life easy and make a great spring is put a tarp over your beds in the winter, especially in a climate like Michigan, Minnesota, all those. North, because you get those early warm days of spring, you're not ready, quite ready to plant yet. Some of those perennial grass seeds have fallen in there. Boom, they germinate first. Now you got a mess of weeds you're trying to deal with. Grass encroaches. You know, things happen before you get time. The other thing is, generally in the fall, as you go into fall, you have a lot of warm weather before it really gets cold. During that warm weather, all those soil organisms can still do their thing. When it gets cold enough, they go dormant. A lot of times when you're planting in spring, they're just kind of waking up, and they're like a teenager on a summer day after a late slumber party. I don't want to get up, Dad. I just don't feel like it. Okay. And then they come downstairs and eat a waffle and watch a cartoon and scratch their butt. And they don't get busy till 4.30 in the afternoon. Or in a case of our soil organisms, until a month after the soil is workable. So they can't do a lot to make a lot of the nutrients from your organic program bioavailable. And that's why it always makes sense to use a good quickly bioavailable nutrient organic kick instead of just compost something like Dr. Earth or some other organic fertilizer because the compost itself, unless it's already released its, its nutrient, it's just kind of sitting there. And, yeah, there's all kinds of nutrient in there. Plant can't get to it because the soil organisms aren't doing their thing yet. So what we can do to kick this up a notch at the end of your season Cut down all your annuals, leave the roots in the ground, unless, we'll get to the unless in a second with, when we do the thing, we're going to go ahead and we're going to hit it with some nutrient and some compost, and we're going to mulch it, and then put a tarp over it. That's the easiest thing you can do. You can just mulch it, you can cover crop it, but the easiest thing to do, if you want to just say, I don't want to touch this until spring, and I don't want to work my ass off in spring to fix anything, get a tarp, put it over it, and what's going to happen is a lot of soil organisms don't give a damn about light. And in that cooler temperature and longer into the fall, it's going to stay warm because of that tarp absorbing heat from the sun and holding it in the ground. They're going to be more active. When spring comes, that sun's hitting that tarp. The ground's going to warm under there faster. It's going to hold it in faster. The teenagers are going to wake up and be sleepy, but they're going to wake up two weeks earlier than the teenager down the block. And that means by the time you pull that tarp back, your soil organisms have a big head start on everything else. Plus, you gave them something to work with, so you have a lot more bioavailability and you take off really fast. There won't be any weeds because the weeds couldn't grow because you blocked the sun. And you're going to be able to stick your hand right down in the soil, and you're probably going to pull up a bunch of worms. And if you want to really kick it in overdrive, do what I said earlier about this. Get some cheap chicken feed or something like that. Some sweet feed, find, go to the feed store and ask for feed that's got a ripped bag that they want to get rid of cheap, and just put it down like it's like a thick layer of fertilizer, put the mulch on top of it, and you're going to have worms in there out the butt if you do that. Now, what do we do with all the annuals? Easiest thing to do, chop it, drop it, put the mulch and nutrient on top of it, cover it up, let it go. The exception. If you have significant pest or insect problems, 
powdery mildew, uh, bacterial wilt, forsium wilt, anything like that, any plants that you have that problem with, I don't even believe in composting those boogers. Pull the roots up, cut the plant up, put it over someplace to dry. Next time you build a bonfire outside, throw that shit in there and burn it. And then that potash, 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 right? That can get mixed into your compost and put back in your garden beds. That's what I would, that's the easiest, straightforward, no stress, no problems. Plant next spring, straight into it. Go ahead and give, when you put your plants in or your seeds in, give a little pinch, a little handful of organic fertilizer on top of it, and you will blow and go. All right, one more. Um, Justin says, I just received a call from the local NRCS agent saying I've been pre-approved for a high tunnel greenhouse cost share program. Because I'm considered a new farmer, it will cover up to 90% of the cost. The challenge is I've purchased supplies and I've begun setting up the aquaponics system. I like fish and want to raise them to eat. Okay. From what I've read, I can't do aquaponics inside the high tunnel because the big thing is improving the soil, not growing in containers with rafts. I should be able to use the fish waste as fertilizer grow on the ground, but how would I accomplish filtration for the fish? I'm thinking I could place the tanks outside the high tunnel and thus outside their jurisdiction. Should I try to do my high tunnel uh, to do a separate aquaponics or aquaculture system? Um, should I try to do my high tunnel and do a separate aquaponics or aquaculture system, figure out a way to integrate the two? Are there crops that would grow better in one system versus the other, in-ground versus aquaponics? I'm sure there's a thousand other questions. I'm in Tampa, Florida, Zone 9A. Super excited to get back some of my stolen money and want to maximize the opportunity here. So this is what I would say. Aquaponics and this high tunnel don't really go together. If you end up with um, a solid separator and you're taking fish waste out of that solid separator every week, you want to mix that, you know, dump that in. And I would do with a high tunnel, I'd probably do um, automated irrigation. And usually with that, it's real easy to put basically a, a, an inline uh, fertilizer system in so that when you turn your irrigation on, if you fill the container up, it just distributes that in the irrigation. I would do that if you're going to do that at all. I want to be really clear. Aquaponics, I hate saying it this way, but i got to say it this way because I've been saying it for three years and people still don't get it. Aquaponics is not for producing fish. Aquaponics is not for producing fish. Aquaponics is not for producing fish. Fish are the gasoline that runs the engine of an aquaponics system, which is chiefly built to do what? To grow plants. Aquaculture is something totally different. We're not going to get into that today. So if you're doing aquaponics, you're doing aquaponics to grow lettuce and cucumbers and tomatoes and whatever. What grows better in the ground than in an aquaponics system? Things that take up a lot of space and things with big, giant root systems that get big and tall. Corn, you know, things like that. Um, big grow crops, etc. What I would do is I would grow inside your high tunnel exactly the way that NRCS suggests that you do whatever crop makes you money. And if you can somehow, you can talk to the guy and say, hey, I do aquaponics. Is there any, like, what can't I do? And what you're going to find is a significantly large aquaponics system uses a lot of grow space, and floating rafts in there is probably not something you can do because they are they are about soil. That's what NRCS is all about. So you got a great asset here. Now, my understanding of high tunnel grants from NRCS works like this. You do what they tell you to do for three years, and they go away, and they never come back to ask about it ever again. 
So I would crop that bugger for three years, and if at some point after that you decide you want to move some component of aquaponics into that site, into, into there, go ahead. Now, you're in Florida in 9A. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think you need a whole lot of high tunnel for your fish. Um, I think you can overwinter tilapia outside. Now, talk to your NRCS rep. It might be that X percent of space must be a certain way. And you may be able to put your uh, fish tanks in there and then run your aquaponics outside of it or what have you. But these are really two different things. And the thing is you take government money, you take it with the restrictions that come with it. But... You do what they say for the time they say you have to do it, and then you do whatever you want. Um, you know, that, that's that's the only way I can explain this one to you, man. Um, but you are not going to do aquaponics and get a significant yield of fish. You're not. Um, it is a plant-growing system that uses fish for nutrient. Now, the fish are about, eventually fish get big enough because they have to grow. So you have a system, and let's say it's a system, you put 100 fish into it. And after a few weeks of cycling, that system's running and working. Okay, great. You've done that. Okay, now the fish start to grow. Well, all of a sudden, 100 fish had biomass A, you know, and now 100 fish have biomass B, and biomass B is four times what A was. And now you've, ex you, you've put as much plants in the system as you can, and there's too many fish because they got bigger, so we take some fish out. And then they get bigger, we take some more fish out. And then they get bigger, we take some more fish out. You see how it works? And eventually we get to a point where we have to cycle through a new batch of fish. So we can make fish for personal use, but the, but the majority of production in aquaponics will always, always be the plants. Now with tilapia and some creative systems, we can make a lot of tilapia. But to make a lot of tilapia, you have to make an ever-loving ass load of lettuce. All right. With that, we've wrapped things up. I want to remind you two big ways to support this show. One is to become a member. To do that, go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. That's all I'll say about that today, other than your membership will pay for itself. Your other way, the painless way, costs you nothing directly out of pocket, is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. You're probably going to buy stuff anyway. So buy stuff through T-SPAS. And when you're buying stuff that I recommend, buy the stuff I recommend because I recommend it because I own it, I bought it, I spent my money on it. If I wouldn't do it again, I wouldn't ask you to spend your money on it. Today's item of the day is the Anchor Astro E7. And I said Anchor is an A-N-K-E-R. Astro E7 portable charger. You know, hurricane season, we just watched Dorian straight for the coast, and fortunately I was wrong. I thought that thing was going to wreck Florida, and I'm happy to be wrong. That thing stalled out, built up to a Cat 5. Pressure systems changed, turned it north. God bless it. Go to the Atlantic, North Atlantic Sea and die a, a noble death. But this is the time of year where power goes out a lot. And we're coming into winter where power goes out a lot. Your main line of communications is your cell phone to gather information and communicate. And if you have a good backup charger and you practice our rules, and I say our, I mean me and Stephen Harris, our rules of maintaining your cell phone, which is if you're not using your cell phone, it's plugged in charging. You get in your car, you plug it in. You come home, you plug it in. You ain't using it, you plug it in. Your kid ain't watching movies on it, you plug it in. Kid is watching movies on it in the car. Plug it in, let them watch movies while it's plugged in. Keep it charged. And you keep one of these, you, you go a week without any power at all. 
and you'll be able to keep your cell phone running if you start then being rationing with your power. It's just awesome. Colossal capacity will charge an iPhone 7 or 10 about 10 times. Uh, Samsung G6, a big one, about seven charges. It'll do an iPad Air two and a half times. Uh, this is 26,800 milliamp hours of power, and it's a battery packed. It's you know twice as thick as a phone and a little bit taller. It's it, it's just an amazing amount of power. It's got a uh, a gauge on it, tells you how much power you have, and they got a new charger out that's in the PS and the review that'll charge that thing really fast. How fast from dead flat? Uh, to fully charge in four hours. When you think about you're charging an iPhone ten times from zero in four hours, that's fast. Check it out. Make sure one of these things is in your kit. It, it really is important. I have one for both vehicles. Um, it is so much better to have power than not have power. And there's a lot of other ways to back your power up, but this is portable, i.e., you got a jet, you take it with you with a cable, and anywhere you go that you can, you dump power into it when you have the opportunity, And I'm telling you, it is colossal capacity. And Anchor, Anchor is my favorite electronics company. Those guys in E-Tech City, yes, they're both out of Hong Kong, China. I understand that, but they're two companies that always stand behind their shit 100%. You can trust them. I do. Anko, Astro, E7. All my recommendations are available where? TSPAS, T-S-P-A-Z.com. Remember, if you're not on my daily mail, you should be. You get one email a day. One email a day. Everything that's new on the blog, maybe a YouTube video link, just text, no graphics, no crap, no, 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 nothing other than what you hear about on the air, but you make sure you don't miss it. And it's free, and I never share your information. You can go to survivalpodcast.com, click on subscribe to join the Daily Mail. With that, we've wrapped things up. Time for our song of the day. We got out of steps last week. I was going to play this song Friday uh, for episode 2500. Somebody emailed me and said, dude, you got to play Revolution is You at the end of the show. And I went, you know what, he's right. So this is Jimmy Buffett. You guys know I love Jimmy Buffett. Today's song is called Come Monday. This is one of Buffett's big eight. But when you say Jimmy Buffett big eight, it's like if you go to a Buffett concert, there's eight songs that you are going to hear. Even if Jimmy's tired of playing them, tired of singing them, you're going to hear those eight songs. Margaritaville, Pencil Thin Mustache, you know, a couple other ones, and you're going to hear Come Monday. Of the big eight, this is my favorite. It really is. I love this song. Just the sound of it and the meanings behind it. So this is uh, this song is for the Labor Day weekend, and that's what was going to be last week if episode 2500 didn't come up. It was in 1973, and when he says, heading up to San Francisco for the Labor Day weekend show, he's talking about a specific concert he had to play. And he had been in California for quite a while by the time he had to play this concert. And that was his, he was done And he wasn't playing Labor Day. He was playing Labor Day weekend. So by Monday, he was going to be in Colorado meeting up with his wife, who was on vacation. This song is absolutely just what was going on in his life. And he wrote it for his wife. And everything was going to be better on Monday because he'd be home and with her. And there's an interesting juxtaposition there. Jimmy always has had this ability to have people love him for rubbing in their face that he has what they don't. So most people hate Monday. Monday sucks for most people. I gotta go back to work. But to Jimmy, Monday meant I'm off the road. I'm home. There's another thing into Jimmy's life that people don't really seem to know about Jimmy Buffett. Jimmy Buffett's like, you know, I think far more talented, even though I love John Denver, far more talented than John Denver. But he's almost like a John Denver that loves the tropics. 
Jimmy's another reason I always love Jimmy is because we're so much alike in what we love in, in the world. And Jimmy is as happy in the Colorado Rockies as he is in the Florida Keys. Jimmy loves Colorado, always has, always has loved the mountains, always has loved the wilderness. Tons of his songs are about that. And this one, the place he's trying to get to isn't Margaritaville. It's the mountains with his wife and someone he loves. The message of this song really, though, is everything in life is subjective as far as when is a good day, when is a bad day. You know, if you work swing shift, your attitude about hours is different than somebody who doesn't. Right? What time of day is better? But in the end, what we all have in common is what we're all really working for is to be the, with the people that we care about the most doing what we most want to do instead of the obligations we have to provide the environment where we can do that. That's why the best life you can design is one that pushes those two as close together as possible. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Come Monday. Thank you very much. One of my 2.4 hit records. We had no money to do this video. Thus, I uh, had my girlfriend at the time, Jane, work for free. She had been modeling. She now is my wife. She doesn't work for free anymore. The car is not a prop. That was my truck and uh, my conch cruiser until it was impounded and crushed into a scrap metal rectangle at Carlos's junkyard. The Boston Whaler was my first boat that I ever bought. There really wasn't much uh, need in scripting this. This was where I lived, the people I lived with, and the girl who I wrote Come Monday about. So here it is. Heading up to San Francisco For the Labor Day weekend show I got my hush puppies on I guess I never was meant for glitter rock and roll And honey, I didn't know That I'd be missing you so Come Monday, it'll be alright Come Monday Yes, it's been quite a summer Rent-a-cars and westbound trains And now you're off on vacation Something you tried to explain And darling, it's I love you so That's the reason I just let you go Come Monday, it'll be alright Come Monday, I'll be holding you tight. I spent four lonely days in a brown LA haze, and I just want you back by my side. I can't help it, honey. You're that much a part of me now. Remember that night in Montana when we said there'd be no
I know that it's pretty up there We can go hiking on Tuesday With you I'd walk anywhere California has worn me quite thin I just can't wait to see you again Come Monday, it'll be alright Come Monday, I'll be home 